Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is researching the paranormal. My guest, Colm Kelleher, is a biochemist with an extensive background in cell and molecular biology. He has served as vice president and chief scientist for environmental control and life support systems at Bigelow Aerospace. Additionally, he has managed the day-to-day -day operations of the Advanced Aerospace Weapon Systems Applications Program of the U.S. government through a contract given to the Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies Organization, of which he was Deputy Administrator. He has served as Deputy Administrator for the National Institute for Discovery Science, and currently he plays a similar role at the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies. He is author of Brain Trust, The Hidden Connection Between Mad Cow and Misdiagnosed Alzheimer's Disease. He is co-author with George Knapp of Hunt for the Skinwalker, Science Confronts the Unexplained at a Remote Ranch in Utah, and he is also co-author with George Knapp and James T. Lakotsky of Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, an insider's account of the secret government UFO program. Colum lives in the Las Vegas area, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Colm. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Jeff. It's, uh, I've, I've seen your show so many times, and uh, it really is uh, a privilege to be on your show. Well, it's a privilege for me to be able to interview you with uh, your extensive background in trying to apply hardcore scientific methods to some of the most difficult problems that uh, are known to exist in any of the paranormal sciences. I thought a good place to begin would be Back in, I guess it would be about 1994, 95, 96, when you first applied uh, to be a part of the National Institute of Discovery Science. Yeah, that's that sounds like a, a, a pretty good place to start. Um, at the time, um, I was working in a, um, a mainstream immunology research institute in Denver, Colorado, called the National Jewish Center for Immunology. I was doing what could be loosely called mainstream research on molecular immunology. My background is biochemistry. And um, I saw this really bizarre um, advertisement in Science Magazine, which is one of the premier science publications in the world. And the, uh, the ad said, we are looking for scientists to research the origin and nature of consciousness in the universe. And of course, this was in the middle of um, a lot of advertisements for po postdoctoral fellows in immunology, it, for biotechnology positions. And here we have in the middle of nowhere, 
this almost it was half a page of ads. So it was a pretty expensive ad that talked about the origin and evolution of human consciousness in the universe. So I was sufficiently intrigued that uh, I picked up the telephone and I called the number and um, eventually I, I got uh, onto Robert Bigelow. Uh, so he invited me out to Las Vegas for an interview um, for this new organization he was calling the National Institute for Discovery Science. This was in July of 1996, which is, what, 25 years ago now, at least 25 years ago. So I uh, hopped on a plane and uh, ended up at his corporate head headquarters, uh, had a face-to-face -face interview with Robert Bigelow. Um, he was asking mostly questions about how science could be applied to anomalies research. And he was asking about crop circles. He was asking about cattle mutilations. And he was asking about, um, you know, mainstream UFO type research. And um, so I answered all the questions and he hired me and uh, started work there very, very quickly. And one of the one of the first assignments I had uh, for, for NIDS was to go over to England and uh, start checking out um, some of these amazing uh, crop circles that were happening in the fields in southern England. So I spent about a week there, gathered a whole bunch of samples from some uh, formations, brought them back and started the whole process of um, getting into analysis of crop circle, uh, essentially molecular biology, to see if there were any changes in the DNA or the protein of, of, of these plants. But almost immediately after I got back, um, Robert Bigelow announced that he was on the way to purchasing a ranch up in northeastern Utah because he, he, there was a lot of um, newspaper articles um, and all of that suggesting that this was a, um, a paranormal hotspot that included UFO activity. So. Long story short, Robert Bigelow purchased the uh, the ranch in uh, August 1996. Uh, myself and another physicist and a veterinarian were deployed very quickly on Skinwalker Ranch within actually a few weeks of, uh, of the purchase. And we started a whole sort of menu of research that um, initiated not only deploying sensors on the property, but also deploying people. So the idea was to um, to have a living laboratory on Skinwalker Ranch that we could uh, assess what was going on because a lot of the stories had um, reported on everything from nuts and bolts, uh, saucer-like uh, objects that had been seen around the property, as well as cattle mutilations and also... Um, unusual creatures, uh, discarnate voices, poltergeist activity. So it was a paranormal Disneyland that really started the whole thing off. All of this occurred, I gather, just within a few months of your joining the organization. That's right. It was a baptism of fire because I, I had been in mainstream science pretty well for uh, 20 years at that stage. And as I said, it was uh, I was used to applying the scientific method through a laboratory, but not a paranormal laboratory, and certainly not 
a laboratory that was located out on the wilds of northeastern Utah. So it was it was it was quite a baptism of fire because the previous rancher had um, he had a herd of cattle, very high end Simmental and Angus cattle that had been deployed on the property. And he had essentially gone out of business. He had lost something like 15 separate animals, high end um, animals to either mutilation, cattle mutilation or plain old disappearance. And so he was he had pretty well lost his livelihood. So he sold the, the property to Robert Bigelow. He was retained as ranch manager for probably about a year after the sale. But um, within, like I said, a couple of weeks, um, we were doing five day and 10 day tours on Skinwalker Ranch. So for the next um, couple of years, I spent literally 300 plus days on Skinwalker Ranch. And we had se we had several scientists. We had a lot of sensor equipment that was um, optical as well as electromagnetic, magnetic field sensors. We even had radiation sensors just in case any of these rumors that were floating around the UFO uh, arena might come true. So we actually had radiation sensors on the property. Um, at, they, they actually never detected anything, but it was, it was part of the, the menu of sensor equipment that we deployed on the property. And, uh, you know, very soon after deploying on the property, I had my first sort of face-to-face, -face, um, you know, in-your-face um, activity on the property. I was standing outside the, uh, the main um, command and control center, and this object came right over my head. Um, it, uh, it came over Skinwalker Ridge, which is on the north end of the property. It was low flying, flying really quickly, and it was completely silent. So it was moving at about the same acceleration as a an F-18 jet, but it did a perfect U-turn above my head, and I had there was another scientist standing right beside me, and then it just exited straight over Skinwalker Ridge, exactly on the path that it had arrived. And, um, you know, it was gone within less than 30 seconds. But this was my first introduction to something that was unusual. It was low enough in the sky that I could actually see some kind of structure behind it. You know, there was a, it was a light. But it was very, very silent. It was almost spooky in how silent it was. But it moved very quickly. And, and the, the turn it made was pretty well impossible for an F-18 to make because it was a really tight hairpin, hairpin turn. And that was my basic introduction to uh, life on Skinwalker Ranch. I wonder about the name Skinwalker. How did that designation come to apply to this property? The ranch itself was embedded in a, um, in a Native American uh, reservation. It was a Ute reservation. So very shortly after, uh, after we arrived on the property, um, we got talking with uh, the what who used to be the rent the ranch manager and now was working for us um, a guy called Terry Sherman and he said that the um, in his conversation with the Ute tribe that the Skinwalker Ranch or the ranch itself was a no go area for for Utes 
absolutely a no-go area. And that um, the reason for that was because the Skinwalker Ridge uh, lay on the path of the Skinwalker, the so-called path of the Skinwalker. And that was this mythical shape-shifting creature that used to apparently walk along the ridge of the, uh, of, of the ranch um, at undetermined times. But because of that, the ranch was considered cursed. And also because of that, um, you know, no uh, member of the Ute Native American tribe would ever set foot on the property. I mean, that was kind of what uh, we were told immediately after gaining access to the ranch. And as I recall from the uh, first book that you co-authored with George Knapp about the property, I think it was published in about 2005, skinwalkers also refer to a, a type of witch or, or dark sorcerer uh, amongst the Native peoples. That's right. And, and the, um, the reason that the ranch was cursed was because of this um, black magic activity that had allegedly generated these skinwalkers um, that were walking along this trail on the on the on the ridge in the property. So it it, it was a, a Native American legend that was also prevalent with the Navajo tribe, um, but uh, the Utes took it very very seriously and. If you ever engaged a, a tribal member in conversation regarding the skinwalker, it, the conversation was shut down immediately. Nobody, and really nobody, wanted to talk about this stuff at all. So when um, you know when the skinwalker ranch eventually became public, um, it was against a backdrop of complete silence. It was almost like an omerta within the Ute tribe never to discuss these these topics. And I'm under the impression part of that might be never to discuss it with outsiders who, who, who weren't part of the tribe, that this was considered only for tribal members, this knowledge. That's probably correct. Um, and, you know, we were definitely at the, at the very outset of, of setting foot on Skinwalker Ranch. We were treated with a lot of, you know, suspicion. People were, were beginning to um, you know, read the newspaper articles all about the sort of the weird stuff that was happening on the property. Um, all of um, what the Sherman family had gone through was widely publicized, both on radio and uh, on in the newspapers. So um, the locals were very, very reluctant to come forward. But you know that changed changed over time. We got uh, we got more and more friendly with uh, with the local people with our neighbors uh we started interviewing neighbors around the property and you know it became obvious within a year or two of being on the ranch that all the strange activity that happened on skinwalker ranch was certainly not confined to the ranch all of the neighbors were reporting very similar activities so um we went through a process over many years of interviewing those people um pretty exhaustively over the uh, the next two or three years, and and to give our viewers an overview, because it's now been as as you point out, well over two decades since this research began, and you co-authored the first book about the property with George Knapp that was published in two thousand five. As a result of that publication, the military got interested. 
Yeah, that was a, that was a really interesting sort of turn of events because um, the reason that George and I published the, the book Hunt for the Skinwalker was to see if there was other properties around the, the country and around the world that were so-called uh, UFO hotspots or paranormal hotspots. And the end result of, of getting feedback from that first book was that indeed there was um, a lot of different hotspots around both North America, also Europe and, and Russia uh, in some cases. But as you mentioned, one of the uh, the uh, outcomes of, of publishing Hunt for the Skinwalker was that um, we had a guy called James T. Likatsky, who was a defense intelligence agency analyst, um, uh, worked at DIA. Um, he, he had a background in ballistic missile uh, physics, a uh, very sort of uh, accomplished guy who had worked as a contractor for the Missile Defense Agency and, and for over a dozen, dozen years with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Well, he read a copy of, of Hunt for the Skinwalker in early 2007, about two years after it was published. One of his co-workers was a guy named Axelrod. We call him Axelrod in the book uh, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. It's not his real name, but uh, he was also at the time a co-worker of Lekatsky. And um, so Lekatsky read the book, gave it to his friend uh, Axelrod. Axelrod was just about to be deployed to uh, Iraq on one of many, many missions to Iraq. So he ended up sitting uh, in the green zone in, uh, in Baghdad, sitting around the pool, reading the uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker. And he told me a lot uh, much later that the uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker actually became a very popular book among people who were kicking back around the pool uh, in the green zone in Baghdad. So, um, you know, the bottom line for, for Lekatsky and Axelrod reading Hunt for the Skinwalker was that Lekatsky started thinking about the, um, the security implications of strange objects that were in the United States airspace and were flying with, without apparent any knowledge or um, know-how from the United States government. And they were flying over airspace in Utah and it was seemingly uh, w without any feedback whatsoever. So um, Likatsky wrote a letter to Robert Bigelow, who at the time was a CEO of Bigelow Aerospace. And it was, um, it was on Defense Intelligence Agency letterhead and in the in the in the uh, letter that Lekatsky wrote, he he said that he was interested in exploring the national security applications and the um, the security applications of what was going on at Skinwalker Ranch. Robert Bigelow then invited Lekatsky onto the property, and sort of uh, within a couple of months of the letter in July of 2007. Jim Likatsky arrived on the property with Robert Bigelow and, you know, he only stayed on the property a couple of hours because he was due back in Washington, D.C. the following day. So this was a really fast trip just to show him the property, essentially. But within 45 minutes of being on Skinwalker Ranch, um, they went into the ranch manager's uh, homestead, which is a small house on the east side of Skinwalker Ranch, and Robert Bigelow was talking with the, uh, the the ranch manager, 
and Lukaski was sort of uh, sit, standing there idly. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, behind where Robert Bigelow and the ranch manager were talking, this strange object suddenly was like a device, a mechanical-looking device, materialized in the kitchen right behind where the two of them were, were conversing. They couldn't see it. Likatsky was looking beyond them and, and saw this uh, tubular, metallic-looking device that appeared in sort of yellowish mist or smoke right behind where, where these two guys were, were uh, conversing. Likatsky was kind of dumbfounded. Uh, he didn't know what to make of it, so he looked away thinking, you know, maybe it was, you know, he was seeing things. He looked back, the device was still there. Um, he actually drew a picture of it shortly after he left the ranch. And the, the the description that he put out to us afterwards was that it was the closest approximation was on the cover of Mike Oldfield's 1980s album, Tubular Bells, which it looks like a metallic curved type object. Well, that's a, uh, an, an approximation of what Lekaski saw. But, um, you know, it kind of blew him away because he was only on the property for two hours and he was almost sort of targeted, quote unquote, um, by a, a, a an appearance of this object, this device that only he was privy to. Uh, and it disappeared after about 30 seconds or less, disappeared into thin air, kind of uh, dematerialized, so to speak. And so Lukaski didn't say anything. Um, he's a pretty reticent guy. He's not sort of uh, he's not prone to sort of, you know, verbalizing everything. So he didn't say anything. And uh, on the way back uh, on the trip, he was thinking about this. And, it, it, you know, he really realized that this property um, had something unusual about it. So um, he was galvanized to talk to his colleagues at uh, at the Defense Intelligence Agency when he got back to Washington, D.C. He reconnected with Robert Bigelow. Robert Bigelow connected with Senator Harry Reid and, and Senator Harry Reid connected with Senator D Daniel Inouye and uh, Ted Stevens. So within... Um, Less than a year, I would guess, a, um, a bipartisan appropriations was authorized, authorized for a $22 million program over a two-year uh, span that would be focused on, the name of the program was called OSAP. It was um, Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program. And so the name of that program was, was OSAP. Um, it was put out for bid on the standard um, Fed Biz Ops, what used to be Fed Biz Ops, and now is called called SAM.gov. But it's where DoD, DOE, NASA, um, pretty well all of the government contractors put out bids and solicitations for contracts. So the DIA contract was was you know nothing different. So it was actually a competitive process where several aerospace um, entities contacted Lekatsky and DIA. Um, it was a competitive process. Ba uh, Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies, which was an organization that Robert Bigelow put together in order to execute this OSAP program, 
uh, came together really quickly. So um, Defense Intelligence Agency rejected some of what was um, put out in that in that proposal by Bass, but they accepted uh, several key uh, proposals. And within uh, by September 2008, a contract was initiated. And this program, this uh, Advanced Aerospace Weapons System application program was born. But the whole thing initiated, um, that chain of events initiated through uh, Likatsky uh, and Axelrod in 2007, reading a copy of Hunt for the Skinwalker. I mean, obviously, we had no idea that this chain of events could, uh, could unfold, but it was a very spectacular you know, series of improbable happenings that, that came from that book. At the same time uh, that you were, began working for the National Institute of Discovery Science, Bigelow established the uh, aerospace company, and I, I gather you also had a role in that business. Yes, I did, and that that was after the demise of the um, the Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program, which terminated in 2010. In 19, uh, 2000, I think it was, Robert Bigelow formed the uh, Bigelow Aerospace, which was um, a, an aerospace company that was devoted to deploying expandable spacecraft into low Earth orbit. Um, and the reason for expandable was that um, they, it was kind of like a, a revolution in technology in that you would launch a, a complete spacecraft that was compressed into a very small volume. And then once it was launched in low Earth orbit, it would expand to three or four times its volume. So you got an enormous uh, multiplier from, in terms of volume, which is very critical for a space station in orbit. So um, Robert Bigelow had formed that uh, that company back in 2000. At the end of the Advanced Aerospace Weapons System application program, he tapped into my uh, background in chemistry to start uh, solving some problems regarding one of the carbon dioxide removal um, technologies that Bigelow Aerospace was developing in order to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So I got involved with the uh, essentially troubleshooting the chemistry of these, uh, uh, the technology involved in removing carbon dioxide. And I got more and more involved into that um, uh, Bigelow Airspace program from 2010, uh, actually 2011 really, until about 2020. So. Um, I became manager of the entire environmental control and life support systems group at Bigelow Aerospace. And our task essentially was to uh, design, develop, um, test, and ultimately deploy um, all of the different technologies that went into making four to six astronauts comfortable in low Earth orbit. So the Bigelow Aerospace modules were conceived as a sort of a next generation version of the International Space Station, which has a, you know, it has a pretty um, defined uh, shelf life, which will probably end in about 2030. So um, the idea was to deploy um, this commercial uh, space station in low Earth orbit as a sort of a follow on 
to the International Space Station. So um, that was a very interesting program that I was involved in for like eight, nine years. It is true uh, that at this moment, one of the Bigelow modules is attached to the International Space Station, isn't it? Yeah, uh, that that's another sort of, um, it was a, a, a proof of concept um, technology demonstrator that was launched in 2016. It was a small um, Pathfinder technology that was actually human rated by NASA. It was a NASA program. They they um, they gave they contracted Bigelow Aerospace to design and develop this small technology demonstrator, uh, 16 cubic meters. It was launched on a space uh, SpaceX um, in the in the bay of a Dragon capsule, and uh, it was berthed onto onto the International Space Station in 2016. It um, it deployed beautifully. In other words, it expanded the technology for expansion, uh, worked beautifully, and uh, all of the sensor data in the last tw uh, five years since 2016 has been that it has not leaked at all. So um, it is it has been a really um, NASA has has decided that expandable technology uh, for the decade 2021 through 2030 is really what needs to be focused on. And you you can already see a lot of the aerospace companies, the large aerospace companies that have been involved, involved in, uh, in design of space stations and substations are already getting very interested in expandable technology. So Bigelow Aerospace, with the deployment of this beam, that small 16 cubic meter beam um, technology, has really paved the way for what what is probably going to be the complete dominance of expandable technologies, um, it, both in low, low Earth orbit and also the lunar programs. Uh, back to the work you were doing with the, uh, would I pronounce it, OSAP? Yes, OSAP. The OSAP program, I understand, is also often confused now in the popular mind with a different program called ATIP. Yes, and, and that arose actually in uh, December of 2017 when um, the New York Times broke, broke an, arc, an article um, on, on this program, but they, uh, they got the name wrong and they, uh, they also conflated the leadership of the program with another much smaller internal Pentagon program called ATIP that had been looking exclusively at, um, you know, the, the military interactions with, uh, with UFOs. And so uh, one of the reasons that Jim Likatsky and myself uh, decided to write this book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, was to correct the record because, um, you know, the New York Times article and all of the media attention subsequent to the New York Times article was all focused on a tiny, tiny part of what OSAP was really doing. And so the purpose of the book was really to set the record straight and and to show that the the scope of the OSAP program was gigantic compared to the small sliver of information that was reported from the via the New York Times. I mean we I think the book really encapsulates about 97% of OSAP uh, what the scope was, whereas 
the three percent was what the New York Times article had uh, had described. Well, the three percent was quite interesting. It involved tracking unidentified flying objects on radar and visual sighting, video sighting uh, off uh, the coast of California and the Pacific Ocean. It seemed as if uh, what resulted from that was really the first time that I'm aware of that the U.S. government publicly acknowledged the existence of these vehicles that seem to have capabilities far beyond anything that any nation on Earth has yet to produce. Yes, that that is true, even though um, it took them quite a while to publicly acknowledge this. And the, the, the full public acknowledgement came in on June 25th. 2021, when they they published this report, um, among those being the, the the case that you cited, um, but but they they publicly acknowledged for the first time in history that UFOs are real and that they may constitute a um, an air safety threat, and they also may even constitute a threat to national security. But, you know, the, that original program regarding the Nimitz Carrier, site, uh, carrier Strike Group um, that happened in 2004, that, that investigation was actually an OSAP investigation. It was originally, I was uh, tasked um, in 2008 uh, when I joined this OSAP program at the invitation of Robert Bigelow to uh, hire a, a staff that would essentially move into and develop uh, the, the, the complete OSAP program. So my task was to hire um, program managers and military intelligence professionals, scientists and engineers, um, data analysts, database administrators, uh, security officers, uh, medical people with medical expertise. So um, I went through a process where I interviewed by telephone and by face-to-face -face interview about 300 people in about four and a half to five months. I mean, it was a very frantic uh, pace of, of, of uh, hiring. We, we were really trying to recruit the best people we could in the shortest period of time. But one of the first hires that I made was a program manager who was, was um, uh, an ex-Marine lieutenant colonel who happened to be an F-18 pilot involved in that Tic Tac case. And I had already hired him within 15 minutes of meeting him. He had a great program manager uh, background. His resume was impeccable. So um, at the very end of the interview, he dropped this bombshell on me that he had been involved in this, uh, this, this really bizarre event involving the, the Nimitz Carrier Strike Group off the coast of San Diego. They were just about to deploy to the Persian Gulf. Um, and uh, about a week or two before they deployed, they started the radar uh, systems on the USS Princeton, which was one of the parts of the carrier strike group, um, started detecting these objects coming in on ballistic missile trajectories at, from 80,000 feet and then dropping all the way down to sea level. Um, at, at, at incredible speeds. So Princeton had logged these uh, these events for three days before they decided finally to 
target some F-18s to intercept them to see what they were. So uh, this lieutenant colonel was one of the F-18s that had been deployed to intercept these uh, these objects. So um, long story short, um, one of the F-18 pilot uh, um, of the of the squadron that was was launched to intercept actually went down to almost sea level to interact with this object, which was white. It had no uh, aerodynamic surfaces. It had no visible means of propulsion. They described it as being about a 46 feet long, uh, looked like a tic-tac breath mint, shiny white surfaces, uh, absolutely nothing to indicate how it, how it uh, moved or how it defied gravity. But this F-18 pilot went down to engage it, and he could see that it stopped its movement when the F-18 started getting close to it, and it actually oriented its axis in the direction of the descending F-18 as if it was tracking it. And so um, you could see the F-18 uh, moving around in a circle of about a mile diameter, and the Tic Tac was moving around opposite in that same circle. And then without warning, the Tic Tac jumped from you know close to sea level to about 20,000 feet, and then within another second, it had jumped another 40 miles to a, a rendezvous point that all of the F-18 pilots knew about and the Princeton knew about, but nobody else knew about. But somehow this Tic Tac knew about this prearranged spot called the Cap, the cap Point, uh, where all of these F-18 pilots knew. So this impossible series of maneuvers um, was visually seen by F-18 pilots, but also very well documented by the uh, the radar systems, which was these were the advanced state of the art radar systems on the USS Princeton. Um, so, long story short, this uh, this program manager who I was interviewing at OSAP told me about this amazing series of events. First thing I did was I called up Robert Bigelow, told him, and together we contacted Lekatsky in Washington, D.C., and this was, I believe, in December of 2008. So Lekowski contacted Axelrod, uh, who was one of the main people featured in the, in the book Skinwalkers of the Pentagon, and he launched a pretty aggressive investigation uh, during early and mid-2009, um, interviewed all of the pilots, interviewed all of the crew people on the, uh, on the Princeton, interviewed a lot of different people, and compiled a report, uh, submitted it to the Defense Intelligence Agency by mid-2009. Um, so that report was an OSAP report. So the entire investigation that had occurred um, was an OSAP investigation. And, you know, when the New York Times broke the article, that was eight years later, in December of 2017, they tacked on that this had been an ATIP, uh, an ATIP program, but it was actually an OSAP, OSAP program. Uh, but, you know, it was the beginning of this whole new era starting in 2017, where UAPs and UFOs became a lot less controversial. Uh, the Tic Tac case became one of the central cases that began con convincing the Senate Intelligence Committees, Senate, uh, you know, the, the different Senate committees that were involved 
in uh, in in national security, convincing them that the UFO um, concept was actually a real a real series of events. And subsequent to um, to the the uh, carrier strike group, the Nimitz carrier strike group event, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of separate interactions between various destroyers and uh, F-18s off both the east and west coast of the United States, all of which uh, were gathered into this report that was um, put out to the public in uh, June 25th of 2021, which I, I see as being a watershed. Uh, it was the, the day that the United States stopped denying the reality of the uh, of the UFO phenomenon. It really was a watershed day. Now, I understand that this particular OSAP report is one of maybe about a hundred OSAP reports that were sent to the Defense Intelligence Agency in uh, the first year of the OSAP program. Yeah, I, the, the hundred we I think it was 104 reports that we eventually submitted. And uh, these reports, uh, you know, they're all summarized line by line in Appendix One of of our book. Um, but but they they delineate the the scope of the uh, of the OSAP program. The Tic Tac, as you mentioned, was one of those reports um, that was that was submitted. But you know, we we had within by May of two thousand and nine, we had. Um, a, a team of 50 people that had been recruited. We had PhD level scientists, we had engineers, we had technicians. We had started accumulating um, a very large database. Uh, we had security officers, we had people deployed on Skinwalker Ranch. Um, so we, we were sort of rocking and rolling by uh, summer of 2009. And um, we had a, you know, I, we were investigating everything from the kinds of uh, tic tac cases that we were that I've just talked about, but we were also investigating uh, UFO um, paranormal uh, cases. Uh, like we were, we investigated a family in Indiana, rural Indiana. Uh, we deployed people on the spot. Uh, where where they had seen UFOs and then suddenly poltergeist activity was erupting around their their house. So we sent a team to investigate that. We accumulated a report on that. We investigated several uh, medical injury uh, cases that were very sort of in your face interactions with uh, with UFOs. We had a couple of MD PhDs on our staff that were tasked with investigating these. Uh, and, you know, we, we followed these witnesses for months and in, in some cases years after the initial event. And so we think OSAP, the OSAP program really pioneered the whole uh, way of long-term follow-up of these cases over time where, you know, we, we could document the health or actually the ill health of some of these these people that had close encounters with UFOs, um, taking serial blood samples, uh, taking serial MRI uh, scans, and we were able to put to, to you know put together pictures that were pretty comprehensive 
of the effects of the UFO close encounter. And so we think that was a way of pioneering what a future UFO program might look like if it ever comes to pass again in the United States government. But um, those 104 reports that were submitted to the Defense Intelligence Agency were really thousands of pages. I, you know, I, I tell people sometimes that in my office in, uh, at, at the Bass headquarters in Las Vegas, uh, we submitted electronic copies of all of these reports, but also paper copies. And I had a set of three, three ring binders in my office that was about over six feet tall of all of the reports, the 104 reports that we had submitted to the Defense Intelligence Agency. And as I said, they spanned a very, very broad spectrum, um, everything from paranormal effects, uh, psychological effects, um, you know, um, to every type of human effect, all the way out to, um, you know, advanced technology analysis, so engineering and, and uh, physics. And you were the deputy director of the program responsible for the day-to-day -day operations. Yes, that, that was my role. I was the first hire. Robert Bigelow called me up uh, one day and, and essentially, um, you know, talked to me on the telephone. I flew out to Las Vegas and I was hired uh, as the first uh, person on the, on the OSAP program. So my task was to recruit the entire group but I was responsible for day-to-day -day operations of the OSAP program. You mentioned earlier, I believe, that the budget uh, allocated was uh, $22 million over two years. I seem to recall, though, that the program was really ultimately only funded for the first year, Is, or am I mistaken? No, it was uh, the program was funded for uh, $10 million in the first year and then $12 million in the second year. But towards the end of the second year, there was a lot of political stuff happening. Um, also, um, the profile of the program had been raised dramatically within the, the Pentagon. And um, there was a lot of unease in the Pentagon about the, the uh, possibility that this might end up, this program might end up on the front page of the New York Times, which ironically, Eight years later is exactly what happened. And so, so um, the, the original concept of the OSAP program was a, for a five-year program. So, um, you know, we had 50 people that were working full-time on, you know, probably eight or nine separate projects that were running in parallel. So when the program terminated in, um, in September of 2010, you know, all those 50 people essentially had to be disbanded. Um, it was a real pity because, I mean, this was, um, you know, it took a lot of effort to get a full staff that was working full time on this program up, trained and deployed and, and gathering data um, in a very short period of time. And it was like a well-oiled machine was starting to really rock and roll when the pro program was terminated. I believe that if if a successful uh, UFO program ever gets going again, I think it's that the OSAP template, that two-year program, is the perfect template for a future UFO program because 
I think the scope of Alsop was very, very unique. And um, it, I, I believe it needs to be repeated. And one of the premises of OSAP, as I understand it, was to have a very wide scope that would include both the physical measurements, the nuts and bolts, but also the paranormal component. That's right. And, and that is probably, you've just put your finger on probably what was most unique about, uh, about this program, because right after the contract um, had been um, awarded by the Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, the team at Defense Intelligence Agency that was working with James Lekatsky and also the team at Robert Bigelow that included people like Jacques Vallée and Hal Putoff and John Schusler, Robert Bigelow himself. I was involved in, in, in some of those initial discussions. Um, so the, the, uh, it, it was really sort of intended to be as broad a scope as possible. And, you know, the idea was to, to stand on the shoulders of 75 years of UFO uh, research and, and, and uh, try to look deeply into um, not only the sensor-driven uh, aspect of, you know, UFO performance, everything from, you know, theoretical physics, advanced physics, and then leading into engineering, all of that, um, you know, was well known, but it was absolutely determined by uh, people like Jacques Vallée and Hal Putoff, John Schusler, Robert Bigelow, that the scope of this would also include human effects. And, you know, what was really unique was that the, the team that Dr. Lekatsky had uh, in Washington, D.C., that included Axelrod, it included a woman called Juliet Witt that is also in the book, and, and several of their colleagues that were, in, it was an interagency grouping out there in Washington, D.C., they were very open-minded and they accepted the premise that the only real way of addressing the UFO mystery was to um, create as large a scope as possible. So baked into the actual program um, was the creation, uh, the design and creation of a new database that would be used to gather and collate all of the data. And so even within that uh, database architecture, um, it was called a data warehouse because the idea was it would have multiple separate um, databases within the data warehouse. But um, the layering of that database was specifically structured to address all of uh, human effects but also all of the physical effects or, or the physical attributes of UFOs. But the human effects, um, all of the physiological effects were, were, were part of the database. Uh, all of the medical injury cases, pathology effects, uh, psychology effects, and then all the way out to paranormal effects. So uh, the database was already baked in, in terms of its ability to incorporate all of those different um, aspects of the UFO effects on human and the open-mindedness by the Defense Intelligence Agency group, in my opinion, was the unique aspect of this. People like Jacques Vallée had been preaching this um, for for decades. Uh, Hal Putoff, John Schusler, Robert Bigelow, all of that experience went into designing this. But to me, the really what, what made this possible was the open-mindedness 
and the willingness of the Defense Intelligence Agency group to follow the data, you know, not to cut the data off just at a small sliver of, uh, of UFO performance. And I, I really think that was a unique part of the, uh, of the defense intelligence. It was their openness um, to, to uh, incorporating all of this stuff that human effects are very messy. You know, they're, they tend to be difficult to repeat. There's a lot of biological uncertainty and in, inherent in the data. But the Defense Intelligence Agency people were more than willing to accept that level of uncertainty. And I think that really uh, says a lot to their credit. One of the unique findings of the OSAP program, I understand, uh, one that I haven't really seen much of it, if anything, in the literature, is that exposure to these paranormal events, whether it's a paranormal creature or a UFO sighting or well, there are many different ways of describing them, but people seem to then uh, be triggered. I think the word that you used was hitchhikers, that it was as if an entity was following these people around after they had been exposed one time. Yeah, that, that was a really remarkable part of uh, what was discovered on the, uh, during the OSAP program. We, we um, during the NIDS times on Skinwalker Ranch, we had got hints. Uh, sometimes, you know, I, I spent over 300 days on the property and occasionally my wife would sort of wake up and there'd be people walking towards the bed uh, in, in, in the bedroom. Uh, there was other times when sort of uh, we'd hear noises in the house and this kind of thing. But it was same thing with Robert Bigelow. Uh, he, he and his family experienced stuff during those early days. But it was very low level and it was it was taken as sort of, uh, you know, not something that we um, got alarmed about. When the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, took over the investigation on uh, Skinwalker Ranch, one of the first thing they did was they, they sent uh, groups of people out there um, essentially on site visits to determine the veracity of what people were saying or what they were claiming. And interestingly, in that, in that first part of the program, um, five different military intelligence people from different, uh, some of them were Navy personnel, some of them were U.S. Army personnel, all of them, are, the majority of them had been exposed to combat um, in either Iraq or Afghanistan. So they were all sort of uh, hardened and well, well accustomed to unusual circumstances and field being out in the field, being out, you know, being out exposed to different things in the field. So all five of those people who were deployed during the OSAP program on the Skinwalker Ranch um, encountered bizarre activity. A hundred percent of the people, in other words, it was not a, you know. Um, I would say my experience on the property was 98% of the time nothing happened. But in the case of all of these people who were, who were deployed on Skinwalker Ranch, 100% of them um, had, had bizarre activity on the property. But even more than that, 100% of these people, when they went back to their homes on the East Coast, um, they brought something with them. And so 
you know, the classic uh, example, the poster child for this phenomenon was the Axelrod family who, um, you know, when, when Axelrod himself encountered the activity on the property, um, he flew back to his home in Virginia and within uh, a month or two, it was almost like all hell bro broke loose in their house. And it was only really um, his wife and his teenage children who began to see these strange things that were happening in their environment. They'd wake up and these dark humanoid shadows would be leaning over their beds. They'd walk out to go to the bathroom and they'd be um, sort of, they'd interact with these large, um, bizarre shaped black objects in, the, in their house. There would be orbs flying through the bedrooms, blue orbs, red orbs, white orbs. And you know, the, the really alar the first alarming um, case was when um, Axelrod's wife was, uh, was, it was about 11.30 at night and she was just shutting down all the lights in the house and she was just about to shut down the, uh, the lights in the backyard when she looked out and she saw standing next, next to a tree in the tree line of the, of the property, uh, what looked like um, a wolf-like creature. But the really weird thing was that it was actually standing on two legs and it was leaning against the tree and it was looking at her in a very unfriendly, baleful way. It was like it really shook her up. I mean, she had never seen anything like this in her life. I mean, she was a nurse. She was a, sort of a very sort of a, a, a woman with a lot of common sense who was not used to staring face to face at an upright wolf in her backyard. So um, she looked away. She looked back and the creature was still there. And then the, the creature kind of walked away um, into the tree line on two legs. And again, you know, anatomically impossible. I mean, um, you know, if you put a, a German shepherd on two legs, it can barely balance. I mean, it will teeter-totter maybe a step or two. But this, this creature walked back into the tree line. And this woman, you know, she determined not to say anything to her husband or to her children about what she had seen. She put it down as something something absolutely bizarre, but she would never repeat it to anybody. Three days later, the two teenage boys were, uh, were down in the living room, which opens onto the backyard. And uh, one of them looks into the backyard and sees an upright wolf-like creature. And this was a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, broad daylight, um, looks at this upright creature that looked like a wolf standing on two legs staring in a very unfriendly way in at him as he was looking out. He alerted his brother and both of them saw this thing and suddenly it took off running on two legs, um, kicking up leaves as it went across the property and um, it r ran into the tree line and vanished. But uh, you know, the, the, the two teenagers called to their family um, and they all, you know, accumulated in the living room. And it was at that stage when the mom um, admitted that she had seen a similar creature three nights, two, three nights previously. And um, the family then went, all, went out to the backyard to see if there was anything that they could see. 
and they walked over to the tree where the the mother had pointed out where this this creature was standing and on the tree there was these distinct what axelrod described to me as really distinct claw marks on the tree and remember axelrod has you know top secret special compartmented information uh, clearances i mean he is a very high level uh, navy person um, not given to fantasizing but here he was telling me about this um, this bizarre creature who had left really obvious claw marks on the tree in his backyard so this was an example one of the many examples of um, of the the so-called hitchhiker effect but all five military intelligence personnel who were on the property as part of the DIA site visit um, you know encountered bizarre activity on Skinwalker Ranch and also brought something home with them so this was this was so prevalent um, you know um, all of the security officers on the property also started reporting that paranormal stuff was erupting in their households um, they also brought stuff home George Knapp who had been on the property a few times who's co-author of, of our book um, he also his wife started seeing things in her home she saw blue orbs uh, she saw unusual activity in her, in her home so a lot of people had documented and validated this so-called hitchhiker effect so uh, we speculated in the book that you know that the whole series of events as it unfolds it's almost like a um, you know some sort of an infectious entity you know the primary person axelrod on the property who uh, has this encounter uh, goes back to his family um, his his children and his wife start seeing things it soon transpired that neighbors actually started seeing things in in their neighborhood and friends of the teenagers and they didn't say anything i mean they were scared to say anything about this bizarre activity in their house but these neighbors um, and school kids also started seeing things so again you know we speculate in the book that this is conforming to what looked like some kind of an infectious agent that was being transmitted from person to person and so if in a in a future program if this kind of thing was ever documented you know if the n was bigger statistically uh, we could start applying all of the standard epidemiological modeling i mean there's been an enormous increase in in the modeling uh, as a result of the coronavirus outbreak two years ago um, all of that kind of epidemiological modeling could be easily utilized for this kind of an effect to see if it actually did have infectious um, infectious agent properties well column i know we could continue our discussion for a long long time in the decades of paranormal research in, in which you've been engaged there are many many other case studies so uh I'm very glad to let our viewers know that we plan to continue our conversations to cover more of the details of this very significant research that you've been intimately involved in 
or close to 25 years. So I want to, for the time being, thank you so much for being with me today. And I look forward very much to our next conversation. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure. And yes, I would love to continue this conversation. There's there's obviously a lot more to this uh, this story. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.